This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. The candidates vying to be the Democratic challenger running against Bruce Poliquin in Congressional District 2 later this year drew a standing-room-only crowd at a forum in Belfast on Sunday. At the event, which was sponsored by the Belfast, Midcoast, and Head of Tide Indivisible Groups and Waldo County Chapter of Maine All Care, the five candidates answered questions on topics ranging from indigenous rights to campaign financing to universal health care. The moderator was Tracy Helbuena. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the structure. I'm going to give some introductions, some basic information about the candidates, and then they'll each have an opportunity to make an opening statement. Um, that will be in alphabetical order. In the introduction, you'll notice some FEC data that I am presenting. That's from third quarter of 2017. The fourth quarter 2017 data is not yet released. The questions have come from people in CD2, in Congressional District 2. A lot of them were solicited ahead of time. Um, and then also, we've been soliciting questions from you, audience, with the cards. Most of the questions are going to be two-minute answers. So, let's get started. Jonathan Fulford. Mr. Fulford is a carpenter and a farmer. He's 56. He's from Monroe, Maine, and he owns Artisan Builders, a construction company focused on energy efficiency and paying employees a living wage. He has run unsuccessfully twice against Mike Thibodeau for the Maine Senate in 2014 and 2016, and was Maine Clean Elections Act certified for both of those campaigns. Mr. Fulford's wife, Chris, is a midwife in Bangor, and they have four grown children. He has raised 68,450 in campaign contributions so far. Mr. Fulford, would you like to give your opening statement? One of the questions that, was, you know, that I've been asked, you know, all of us to address in the opening statements is, why do I think that I can win against Bruce Poliquin? And I think that the key to winning this race, this, the general election race against Bruce Poliquin, is going to have to turn out the voters that turned out in unprecedented numbers in the caucus last year, and then too many of them faded away because they felt that the Democratic Party was not responsive to actually their concerns and their wishes, and their voice wasn't being heard. If we are going to win against Poliquin, those voters have to once again decide that the Democratic Party will reflect, or a candidate within a Democratic Party is reflecting their values and their goals. <clears throat> um, I think that my being a, a working class, small business owner that has supported, that in that race supported Bernie Sanders in the primary and then supported Hillary after that, I think speaks well to actually bringing that unity back to uh, the voters. Um, I'd also say that um, the issues which I find are most critical that we are facing is climate change and ocean acidification. If we do not address that, whatever else we do will not matter. The other thing that that will do is we can actually create a ton of really good paying jobs in every single town in this entire district if we actually put the resources towards it. So when people talk about jobs, that's how you build jobs, you fix problems. Also single payer universal health care, and also dealing with the massive inequity in power, wealth, and income, which is destroying the fabric of our society and as well as is rigging our politics. 
Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next is uh, Jared Golden. Mr. Golden, 35 years old, was born in Lewiston, Maine, and grew up in Leeds. He is currently serving his second term in the Maine State Legislature, where he is Assistant Majority Leader for the Democrats. He served four years in the Marine Corps with deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. Upon returning home from war, he attended Bates College, earning a degree in politics. He has worked as a professional staffer for U.S. Senator Susan Collins, as well as a legislative aide in the Maine State House. He served on the Transportation Committee and on the Veterans and Legal Affairs Committee. Mr. Golden lives in Lewiston with his wife, Izzy, and works at his family business in Leeds, Springbrook Golf Course. He has raised $104,872 for his campaign so far. Your opening statement. Thank you, Thank you Tracy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Democrats have not won a statewide election in Maine in over a decade. Can you hear me now? Let me say that again. Democrats have not won a statewide election in Maine in a decade. That's a serious problem. We've lost this district to Donald Trump in the last election. Bruce Poliquin has been elected in 2014. In 2016, I think it is very clear that our party had better figure out how to meet and address the needs of the people of this community, and we'd better do it pretty fast. So I'll tell you, in 2016, exit polls told us, voters told us, that they did not feel that they were better off than they were in 2012. At the same time, they voted to approve a minimum wage increase to $12 an hour. And most recently, in 2017, these voters also approved Medicaid expansion. We know that people care about economic issues that are going to impact their daily lives, and that is what this party had better start speaking to. Uh, in Lewiston, same problems. Paula Page has been elected twice in that community. We've lost four straight mayoral races to a conservative. But at the same time, we're still winning there at the state house level as Democrats. And I, I think it's really important and meaningful because that is a community that has gone through tough economic struggles. And it just shows that at the end of the day, what we need to do is keep a laser-like focus on economic issues. That is what is going to turn people out to the polls, is a clear understanding that going to vote for a Democratic candidate is what's going to help turn their lives around. And that's just what I am committed to doing. It's what I've done successfully in Lewiston twice now, winning elections by 67 and 71 percent of the vote. I'm out of time there, so I'm going to leave it there and, and, and pass it on to Craig, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so next is Craig Olson. Mr. Olson grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and has worked as an investigator for the state of Wisconsin Public Defender's Office. He's 52. He earned a master's degree in history museum studies. In 2001, he, his wife Melissa, and their three daughters moved to Islesboro, Maine. On the island, he owns and operates a used and rare book business called Artisan Books and Bindery and runs the transfer station. He has served eight years as a member of the Islesboro Planning Board and three years as an elected member of the Isles Board of Selectmen, Islesboro Board of Selectmen, and one year as the chair. According to the FEC, he has raised $78,629 so far. 
your opening statement. Thank you. Can you hear? Thank you for coming out. Um, I'm just so excited to be here. This is uh, great fun um, to be out and talk to people. And for me, this campaign really comes down to getting out in the communities and talking to people and seeing what their issues are and what solutions they might have. Um, living in a small community like we do in Islesboro, um, you know, your neighbor is not somebody who you always agree with, maybe politically, but you know at 3 a.m. you can call them and they're going to be there to help. And that's what I'm finding as I'm going around this community, I'm going around the second district talking to people. It is unbelievable to me the solutions, uh, that, the suggestions for solutions that people have and how these regional economies are beginning to develop that we used to only think that we just had mills and fishing and lumber. And some of these regional issues that are coming up are things like boat building here in Belfast. And what we, um, in our community on the island, it's not only about, um, you know, we have a large summer community, but it's also about people who do that in the summer. They do lots of things to keep, you know, to keep the, the wolf from their door, so to speak, which is what we've done, um, had to do in our family as well. And so in getting out and talking to people, my experience, it's interesting, and our family is not different from other people, and be able to get out there and talk to people about what their real concerns are and what solutions they think would work best for the state of Maine is what I'm finding to be the, really the most invigorating thing about this campaign. And to actually see results in communities. I mean, with what's going on with the three-bring binder through Maine, for me, the real issue is infrastructure, and it's health care, and it's getting people back to work, and also uh, making sure our kids can stay here in Maine, whether that be through education in our community college system or our state university system. It is imperative that we build these regional economies and, you know, build the quality of life that we have in this state. It's a fabulous place to raise your children, and we want to have more children raised in this state. All right, so next is uh, Tim Rich. Mr. Rich is a successful small business owner, a former healthcare reform activist for the Service Employees International Union, and a former union organizer for the Maine State Employees Association. In 2011, he opened the Independent Cafe in Bar Harbor as a small takeout espresso shop. It is now one of the busiest casual cafes in Hancock County. Mr. Rich is originally from Maine and lives on Mount Desert Island. He has raised 48737 in campaign contributions so far. Your turn. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. I'm just I'm getting over a little respiratory infection, so I apologize if uh, my voice goes out here and there. Um, thank you all for having me. Thank you, Tracy and, uh, and Trudy and Michael and everybody else here for doing this today. This is great. You know, I, I think to beat Bruce Poliquin, we're looking at three or four very specific things. I think that people are looking for a new kind of genuineness and honesty in politics. I think that they're looking for a clear comparison. Um, I spent most of my life poor. Bruce Poliquin, as we know, is very wealthy. Um, I, you know, I'm a, a hardworking person. My family's been hardworking. We worked in the mills for generations in Maine. Um, and, I, and I think people are looking for a really clear vision about what we can all achieve working together in this district and as Mainers and as countrymen. And, you know, I, I think as much as I, as I care, and I care a lot about health care, um, I care a lot about, about, especially about economic inequality, but I think there's a whole other level of problem that we need to address here, and that's the fact that Donald Trump is our president. And uh, the unique distinction I think I have among this crew is that I'm the only person to be kicked out of a Trump rally by Donald Trump himself. So, so that, was a, that was a good time about a year ago. Uh, 
But I, I guess I just want to say that, you know, we, we got lucky with Donald Trump in a way because uh, I had a feeling, and I know a lot of you did early on, that we might be electing a fascist. The fortunate part is that he wanted to be inept and not authoritarian. Now, now, the real scary thing, when you start looking at Facebook algorithms and you start looking at you know, YouTube and what comes up on people's feeds, is that artificial intelligence is running all of this now, and it's splitting our body politic even further and further to the left and the right. And if we can't come together, and we can't find common ground around issues, then I really worry about where we're headed as a country. Thank you. Perfect. OK. Uh, and then finally, we have um, Lucas St. Clair. Uh, at 39, Mr. St. Clair is a former small business owner, sportsman, and outdoor guide. He was born in Dover, Foxcroft, and now lives in Hampton with his wife and two children. He graduated from culinary school in London and returned to Maine after working a while in the big city. He has never held elected office, though eventually became executive director of Elliottsville Plantation Incorporated, which led the successful effort to establish Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. He sits on the Quimby Family Foundation Board. He has raised no money in contributions so far, according to the FEC. Your personal statement. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me here and coming out. Uh, this is such an invigorating thing to see. Um, I spent the last five years working in northern Maine, traveling around the 2nd District in, in an effort to create Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, in an effort uh, to give away 90,000 acres of land that my family has acquired over the last 20 years to the National Park Service. It was a controversial idea, as many of you probably have heard, uh, but the opportunity for me to do this work when it arrives um, caused me to go to have as many conversations with individuals as possible. And what I learned over this time is, is people were desperate to be heard. They were desperate to be listened to, and they wanted action taken on behalf of their ideas, on behalf of their communities, in an effort to rebuild economies that once were great, and to, to see rural Maine and, and northern Maine be able to have its, its time again. And there's no doubt in my mind that this can happen. And the, the work around the National Monument, I think, is, is uh, a great example of how things can happen when people put their minds to it and build a grassroots foundation to achieve something that otherwise seems impossible. We were able to build a grassroots coalition of, of tens of thousands of people uh, and ultimately convinced President Barack Obama to create the new National Monument. When the Trump administration be decided to review the National Monument, over 200,000 people wrote into the federal government in, in support of, of what was created. And so I think what is strongest in, in our country and what makes the largest impact is when we work together, build a strong grassroots foundation, and together what we can achieve is remarkable. And that is exactly what my hope is uh, to, if I have the pleasure to serve you in the United States Congress. Thank you very much. Thank you. The first question is a two minute question. It is for Tim Rich. Um, um, okay, so what is your top issue and how do you plan to tackle it when you get to Washington? Sure. 
Um, well, <clears throat> you know, there are a lot of issues I, I care a lot about. Um, uh, universal health care is one of them, like I mentioned, economic inequality. But the issue that's most personal to me um, is the opioid crisis going on through Maine and through rural communities all through our country right now. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind, could I see a show of hands? I'm just curious. How many of you know someone or has a family member, someone who's, who's experienced the trouble with the opioid crisis? Or, Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. You know, anywhere we go and I ask that question, usually we get at least half a room, if not the whole room. Um, my, my best friend overdosed on heroin about 15 years ago. And, and that's something that never really leaves you, you know. Um, there's a lot that we could be doing that we haven't been doing. Um, you know, I, I know that Jared and others in the legislature have worked hard and, and, and are moving things forward. But, you know, we got to do it on a national level and we got to go big time. We, you know, we need to remember and keep in mind that 80% of people who wind up addicted on heroin, 80% start with prescription pain medication. And, you know, one of the reasons why it's such a trouble in a place like Maine is that a company called Purdue Pharmaceuticals that created OxyContin specifically targeted rural Maine and Appalachia because they knew there were high levels of chronic pain and a blue-collar community that was stoic and that probably wouldn't complain about it. Um, these people are immoral, and I think it's disgusting, and I think we need to start going after pharmaceutical companies and physicians that overprescribe this poison. Thank you. Okay, next, uh, the same question for Jared Golden. What is your top issue, and how do you plan to tackle it when you get to Washington? Thank you very much. Can, can you all hear me this time? Sorry if I'm not good with a microphone. I'll try and be louder. Uh, great answer, Tim. Uh, I really appreciate what you, what you just said. Uh, for me, through my service on the Transportation Committee and getting back to that focus on, on our economy, uh, one of the things that really bugs me is, is the state of our infrastructure. We underfund our roads here in Maine by about 160 million dollars a year uh, and that would be what it would take just to maintain what we have which I know you all know is not competitive and, and not looking very good so um, we have a president who is talking about making an infrastructure investment package uh, in Congress the problem that he uh, I think with his proposal is that he would have it just be about 200 billion dollars and would rely on states and municipalities to work with private industry to make the rest of that investment Maine doesn't have money to put forward towards those types of matching funds we need need the federal government to step up and, and make a real investment in rebuilding America and rebuilding Maine. And I think that's going to be very important to creating jobs. We are behind right now. Our state GDP is lower than it was in 2007. We're one of the few states that hasn't actually recovered from the recession. We need that kind of stimulus spending to create jobs rebuild our infrastructure and, and that will actually help our, our small business economy as well so I also think it has the advantage of being an issue where Democrats to be in the majority in Congress and Republicans a majority in the Senate that we could actually deliver on uh, to make sure that we we follow through on our promises to voters and do something that's meaningful for Maine's economy thank you you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. These are the Democrats who are vying for that party's nomination to run against Bruce Poliquin for Congress in District 2 this fall. The forum was sponsored by the local Indivisible and Maine All Care Groups. All right, next is uh, Lucas St. Clair. Same question for you. What's your top issue and how do you plan to tackle it when you get to Washington? So 
My top issue really is the economy and jobs. Uh, I spend a lot of time traveling around this district and see some of the real hardship that people are facing because of a loss of um, of a manufacturing economy predominantly. We, in the last decade, we've lost 10,000 jobs in the pulp and paper industry and, um, and, and on and on and on in, in other sectors of our economy. And I think the best way to approach it in Washington, D.C., is focusing on what... Um, in, in what committees uh, a congressman sits on. Congressman Poliquin sits on the Financial Services Committee. Um, this does not work for people in the 2nd in the District of Maine. Uh, it focuses on regulation of banks. While it does have an impact on the, the financial situation in our country, it does not help the 2nd District. Things like the Transportation Committee, the Agricultural Committee, those things are, are having real effects on, like as Jared mentioned, building out infrastructure, bringing SBA, Small Business Administration jo- uh, grants, innovation grants. If we worked on inter- energy independence and a renewable energy system in Maine where we could get off reliance of foreign oil, that, that also would create jobs. Uh, and thinking about farming, fishing, and forestry, the three pillars of Maine's economy in a 21st century way. And that is, I think, a really important part to celebrate the culture and heritage of our state, but think about it in a way that makes sense and is relevant in a 21st century economy. There's things that we can do with the forest products industry, such as building cross-laminated timber. The aquaculture industry is having... Um, some impacts and we can do more there and by still uh, harvesting things from the sea but doing it in a more relevant way and certainly in in the agricultural industry there's a lot that can be done through uh, the infrastructure for commodity farming but also organic farming uh, on the local level so those those are the things that I think are most important to help uh, to help this second CD great thank you all right next is uh, Craig Olson, same question. Um, what's your top issue, and how would you plan to tackle it? All these are fabulous issues, and I, you know, you want to tackle them all. For me, actually, the top issue, and it was one of the reasons, is the reason I got into the campaign. I'm not a single-issue candidate, but for me, it's affordable health care. And, and I came to that simply because, uh, as a small business person, raising a family, um, we struggled with affordable health care in my family. We struggled with a $10,000 deductible when we were self-insuring our, ourselves and our, and our family. And also then, um, and we were very fortunate with the ACA to be part of the ACA and have a $5,000 deductible, which was a decision we made based on our budget and our budget for our family and our budget for our business. Then two years ago, I got skin cancer. And, you know, that was a $2,300 bill. At the same time, the boiler went out in our house. And then we were getting behind. And the fuel oil, we were getting behind. And we were lucky where we lived that there's a community foundation that stepped up and helped us out. But most people don't have that. And in watching this past year, where we had this attempt, you know, the three times trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, having Congressman Poliquin voting to repeal the Affordable Care Act, we had people who were making decisions about topics that they had never had to struggle with. So for me, it's about affordable health care. It's probably one of the primary focus because that's something that rings true with me. As a businessman, if I knew what that health care costs every year, you could budget for it, but with the skyrocketing increases, it's, it's almost impossible, so you're between a rock and a hard place. One of the first things I would do, and of course, if I was congressman, yeah, I'd be 434, probably, on the seniority list, but I would introduce a bill, and I would keep introducing it, requiring that everybody in Congress take the insurance that's offered in their state. 
you've had to navigate that system, you would be making choices and you would be making changes. It would make your head spin how quickly we would have a health care system and a health care insurance system that worked for everyone. Great. Okay, and then uh, finally for this question, uh, Jonathan Fulford, same question. What's your top issue and how would you tackle it? Um, it has to be climate change still. And the solutions to climate change, which will actually be the basis of restoring a strong and vibrant economy, that if, if we do not, as I said, if we do not tackle that, it really won't matter what else we do because we will not have a future for our children and for us to enjoy. So to tackle that with all the resources that it will take means we have to insulate and renovate every building in every town and have to make it so it's, an, it's a financially viable for every homeowner to do that, right? That's a big job. That's a lot of plumbers. That's a lot of electricians. It's a lot of solar installation. That's a lot of work. But if we can give a trillion and a half dollars to the wealthiest people in this country just so that they can have another island in the Bahamas, then we, bloody, you know, we, can, we can do this and actually create a future. Yeah. The other things which in tackling climate change does, it means we focus on actually having our forestry and our fishing and our farming, as people said, to actually have to be part of the transformation and making them you know, economically viable is making them actually meet the demands of carbon sequestration and production of food that we have to actually step up in the Northeast. We have to have that as what our goal is. Because we have to look at what's actually threatening our entire society globally and nationally. And the role Maine has to play in actually meeting some of those important, um, the important needs that are, that are rising. Um, I wish I could say a couple other options too, but uh, I'll stop there. But yeah, good, thank you. Okay. So now I have um, some pre-selected questions uh, that are more particular to each of the candidates, and then we'll move into the questions that we've collected from you guys. Um, I do want to say that we're doing really well with time right now, um, but I would um, like to remind you to hold your applause till the end, just for time's sake, because I really want to hear a lot of what the candidates have to say. So the next question is for Tim Rich. Uh, you've proposed um, Medicare for all at a cost-effective form, um, as a cost-effective form of universal health care. What is the greatest barrier to achieving that? Sure. Um, well, I, I do believe it, that Medicare for all is the way to go. But really, I think there's a lot of different ways to get us to single payer. There's a lot of, get, well, I should say, there's a lot of different ways to get us to universal coverage. And I think that's what's most important. Uh, you know, I really like the, the Medicare for all plan largely because insurance companies um, and inefficiencies in our system eat up about a third of healthcare costs right now. Um, insurance companies routinely have 15 to 20% profit margins, and that's money that is not going to your healthcare. That's money that's going into the pockets of fat cats. And, and I, so I think that's morally reprehensible. I think we need to get rid of the insurance companies, step one. But, but asking, you know, what the biggest um, kind of block to that would be is I would have to say, you know, lobbyists and lobbying money. Um, and I think all around, we saw it in the 90s when the Clintons tried to do it. Uh, we saw it again in 2008 when Obama did it, and they, they didn't allow him to have a public option um, in Obamacare. 
uh, I, you know, I think it's huge. I think that the, the sort of linchpin to all of this and all the issues we're going to talk about today is campaign finance reform and, and making sure that we turn back uh, some of the stuff that's been done in the last few years and that, you know, I actually, I love what they do for the governor's race in Maine. I think we should have matching funds available for congressional races. And, and going forward, I think that's how, that's how we fix that problem. Uh, next question is for Jared Golden. This is a two-minute question. Um, so you missed three important environmental votes, including the solar bill. Um, say a little bit about your position on solar energy. Thank you very much. Um, certainly, uh, I, one of the things I take most importantly is uh, being there on the House floor to take a vote. It's actually uh, the first time I ever... Um, missed a vote on the House floor in the three years I've been there, and I, I regret that very much. In terms of solar, uh, I would just say look to all the other votes that I've taken in, in support of solar energy. The bill uh, that did not pass, I supported repeatedly throughout the process. Uh, in the last legislature, unfortunately, the governor vetoed it, as you all know. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to do the math. There were... Uh, Failed by about, I think, seven votes. Uh, there weren't enough Democrats in the room or absent to make up the difference there. Uh, unfortunately, at the end of the day, it came down to those Republicans who supported the initial enactment of the bill and then um, changed their vote when the governor pulled his support and, and vetoed it. But in terms of solar, I am all in on every, any and every investment that we can to, to push that forward, whether that be at the federal or state level. Uh, I think that we need to focus on doing solar uh, you know, at, not only at the residential level, but at the commercial level. It's something that I think communities like Lewiston and others all over the state should be looking into in terms of we, we got a lot of empty mill space, a lot of rooftop where we could be putting solar mm -hmm. panels in and, and putting that towards municipal energy uh, and helping to drive down uh, costs locally. But also certainly very important, as Jonathan has alluded to, that we be making our homes more efficient. And when we invest uh, as a government or uh, as a society in, in solar energy, we're, we're doing doing that and uh, we're, you know we're creating jobs so um, I think that's that's all I'll, I'll say about it for now um, whether it be tax credit type programs or, or direct uh, government investment in making solar uh, solar more affordable for for people or for businesses uh, I'll, I'll support all of that at, at, at any level thank you thanks all right this next question is for Lucas St. Clair Voters in Congressional District 2 continue to be divided on the Cantadan uh, Monument. How will you appeal to all of them? So the division exists uh, in the media, but it certainly doesn't exist on the ground. The last poll that was done in the 2nd District showed 78% of, uh, of voters supportive of the National Monument, and that uh, support had grown from about 56% support when we started in this work in 2011. Uh, so the reality is it's supported by a huge majority, uh, more than any other political figure or, um, or referendum that has come forward uh, other than bond issues for the, in the last decade. And the work that was done in order to build that support was from one-on-one -on -one conversations, speaking to individuals, meeting them where they are, and incorporating compromise. Uh, the, in the Katahdin region, snowmobiling is a very important part of the in, import of, important part of recreation and and the economy. And so we worked with the Park Service to allow for 33 miles of snowmobile trails in the new National Monument. 
uh, hunting is also an incredibly important part of, of the local heritage and culture in, in the Katahdin region. And we worked with the part, Department of uh, Interior and the Department of Justice to allow for uh, some issue some allowances on the title before transfer that allowed for hunting in over 37,000 acres of the National Monument. This is the first National Monument that was created in 110 years that allowed uh, for hunting in the National Park Service. So we're really proud of that work and bringing people together. And this was not a partisan issue. This was Republicans and Democrats coming together, building a big tent, and that grassroots support carrying the day in the end. Right. Um, next question is for Craig Olson. You are in favor of some form of federal universal health care insurance program. Would you be willing to compromise in the short term to expand current access to health care short of the universal coverage goal? Yes. I, I th it's something that has to be done incrementally. I mean, you know, it, it, what was it Rahm Emanuel said, never waste a crisis. Um, I don't think we're at a level of crisis where we could institute a, a system that simply was, you know, the next day it was, it was there. Um, I think it has to be incremental. I think you have to work with insurance companies. You have to limit the lobbying and, and the price gouging that's happened because of the, the um, increased drug prices and not being able to negotiate certain things. Uh, you know, I the Medicare for All model is a it, it's it's a good model when you talk about Medicare for All. It makes sense to people, but Medicare is a little bit different from Medicaid, and how the 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 funds are distributed are different. So, I would say a universal care system that is based in some ways on how we as a business, you know, 2.95 percent of of salary goes to Medicare. So why don't we increase that to six, three percent from the from the employer, three percent from the employee, and everyone's covered of everybody who's working. I, that's one of the ways I think that you could actually start to fund such a system and have a basis of care. I'm not asking for Medicare, and I'm not asking for the federal government to pay for Viagra, and I'm not asking it to pay for Botox. I'm asking it to give us a universal basis of care so that we all are healthier. We don't have to self-diagnose our children thinking, you know, I, I, is it bad enough I should take them in? What's my deductible? Can I afford to build that deductible? And so I think that we need lower deductibles that are universal, and we need a base level of care that everyone can afford. Thank you. All right, uh, Jonathan Fulford. What have you learned from your two previous losses that will help you win this election? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a lot. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, I don't regret any minute of going against Mike Thibodeau in spite of not coming out winning. I learned a lot. I made a lot of good friends, met a lot of good people, learned a ton about Waldo County and, around, and about the state, and then threw myself at Augusta for the last four years in between each race, trying to even learn more about how politics actually works. Um, it's been a great experience. I recommend it for everyone. Um, and uh, I think that it has seasoned me to know kind of what it's like to go up against a powerful Republican machine. And I know that Pollock will even be more powerful than even Mike Thibodeau and... <clears throat> but I've seen some of what they do. And it's like, all right, bring it. I'm ready. Um, and I think also that it has also made it clear to me that a populist economic message resonates and that single-payer universal health care resonates with poor rural communities. If you actually talk about meeting people's needs, 
exactly when they talk about really what, how, how hard their lives are, and when you listen, then that's how you actually can uh, both have the support you know, if we're winning an election, but more importantly, the support, I think, for making the, the big um, changes to our society, which we need in order going forward. So. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, so this is a two-minute um, answer, and you can each have a turn to answer this. All four federally recognized tribes in Maine are located in the mm -hmm. second congressional district. Do you believe that these tribal communities should enjoy the same rights and benefits that all the other federally recognized tribes in the United States enjoy? As the recent Suffolk University shows, an 11th hour anonymous clause was inserted into the 1980 Federal Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act without the knowledge or consent of tribal representatives. This clause prohibits Maine tribes from benefiting from just such legislation unless they are explicitly named in the legislation. What will you do to address this injustice? And we'll go with Tim Rich first. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I very much do believe that. Uh, you know, one of the first meetings that, that I took when I decided to run for this position was with Molly and Dana, um, who's the ambassador for the Penobscot Nation. Um, I, I very much believe that, that we owe it um, to our Native American brothers and sisters to make sure that the law is equally applied. Um, and I mean, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say on that. It would be a, a priority for me if I was to be elected. So, um, same question to Jared Golden. Thank you. Um, you know, I think the biggest problem with that is, is what you read, which is that it was written into the contract, uh, and, and that has been a repeated impediment to any progress uh, for, for our tribal nations here in, in the state of Maine, um, and really been a problem, uh, so much so that we've even seen uh, at the attorney general's level uh, that uh, individuals who may be supportive of, of helping the tribes um, find them, their hands tied um, defending the state because of that. So, uh, you know, to the degree that the federal government could get involved and take any action, I would be there. I think that it is ultimately probably a matter of supporting that openly and publicly and, and also um, pushing for the courts to uh, consider that when, you know, and, and I think the tribes are going to have to uh, bring that to the courts for, for their decision. So whether that be advocating uh, and making sure that we're nominating, uh, you know, a court system that represents our democratic values, um, speaking very clearly to Maine's governor, who is the one who is ultimately in, in that position of uh, deciding how to apply the laws in, in an equal and fair manner. But um, I, I certainly believe that they should be treated completely uh, equally and, and fairly before Maine's laws. And uh, one issue that I would not be able to resolve as a congressman, but I do think that we could put forward as one solution is, isn't it about time that they have representation in, in the Maine state legislature? They don't they don't have the benefit of a vote on the House floor, and therefore they don't have the benefit uh, uh, of having their voice heard. Um, and I think that that needs to change. So thank you. All right. Um, same question to Mr. St. Clair. So I agree I, um, with with everything that's said. The the Maliseets, Micmacs, Penobscots, and Passamaquoddy deserve the sovereign jurisdiction over their lands and waters that have been taken away from them incrementally over the last 300 years. There is a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, from a legal basis and otherwise to 
to make this square again. Uh, the 1980 Indians Claims Act has has um, needs, in my opinion, to be addressed and and um, reworked in order to give uh, tribal nations uh, an equal level of of play because it is is completely unfair to see this how the populations have been marginalized. I think in addition to the legal pursuit of, of making a more level playing field, we have to work closely with the tribes in order to celebrate the traditions that they all hold uh, very dearly. And I've been working with the tribes very closely over the last many years uh, in, on the east branch of the Penobscot, which is a very sacred river, and, and, and Mount Katahdin, which is a part of the, the Penobscot's mythology, celebrating their language, their, the geography and the history that they have on this land from the last ice age uh, is an incredibly important thing. Uh, the organization Gadakana in, um, and, and working with them to help uh, tribal youth understand language and learn their, their native language and learn the traditions of storytelling and uh, exploring in the woods, basket making, all are incredibly important to be able to invigorate uh, the, the tribes, and I think that ultimately will lead to uh, a further pursuit all the way to to legal um, to, to legal outcomes that will change the way that they have um, jurisdiction over their lands and waters now. You're listening to a forum that was held in Belfast on Sunday, January 21st, sponsored by Area Indivisible and Maine All Care Groups. The five candidates are Democrats who are hoping to challenge Bruce Poliquin in the 2018 Congressional District 2 election. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Craig Olson, same question. Being fourth makes this a lot easier. Um, I agree. <laughs> um, Wholeheartedly. What I, what I find reprehensible really is that the exclusion of, of Maine tribes from this, this bill and this language, and I just, I, it's, I, it's reprehensible, and I don't think, I think that these Native people need the same representation across this country. I mean, why should we be, why should we be changing things um, for the Maine Native peoples and not, um, you know, offering the same benefits that the other tribes across the country have. So, um, having lived on edges of reservations in in Western Iowa, um, it is amazing um, the issues, the problems, the opportunities that these these institutions and these places have. And um, I want to see all people treated equally in the same way. And then finally, same question to Jonathan Fulford. So the, um, can, there is continuing uh, institutional genocide being played out in both our state government and I believe in our federal government with the way which the tribes are not treated as equal sovereign nations consistently. And I think that the rulings that have happened uh, recently around the water rights as well um, with the Penobscot are a continuation of that very same problem. And in, as a elected to Congress, I would not have a direct say in that, but I think making sure that anytime you're a person has a public voice to be clear on what one thinks, what one sees as the challenges and the problems that, that, that in, in any situation and with the, with, um, with the tribes, that is one of the key ones right now. And as far as like not having the representation, again, being really clear, yeah, they should have a full vote. You know, I think that's, you're absolutely right, Jared. And um, yeah. Great. Thank you.
Next question is for um, Tim Rich, and it's a two-minute question, and it's about aging. Um, as our <laughs> I turned 40 this year. Be careful. <laughs> as the population ages, there's a greater need for programs to support the elderly, as well as people with disabilities, to live in safety in their own homes and for as long as possible. Right now, there's a shortage of workers willing to be home health care aides because of the wages. Uh, they're too low uh, to live on. What would be your solution to this growing problem? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's very direct. I mean, we need to, to pay people better. Um, everything from CNAs who work at nursing homes to at-home care, you know, all the way up. I know RNs do pretty well, um, but once you go beyond that, you do very well. But there are a lot of people who can't even afford uh, to pay their own rent and they're out giving care to our, our most vulnerable and our elderly. I mean, you know, it, it used to be that we lived in a world where when somebody got older, they would move back into your house. And, and it was a, a very kind of contained family unit. And unfortunately, with a lot of the larger changes in the world um, and the way that economics works now and the fact that people move all around the country, that's not really... <clears throat> applicable in the same way. So we need to make sure that people are taken care of. I, I think another part to that is also to make sure that, that we, we start addressing honestly and openly this kind of epidemic of loneliness going on with, with our aging population. Um, and, you know, a big part of that is, is at-home care isn't just, you know, straight up at home, you know, take care of you, make sure you're safe. A lot of time, you know, that's a friendship for these people. And, and we need to make sure that folks are, are paid appropriately um, and compensated well for, for that work. Thank you. All right. So next question is for, let's see, let's do St. Clair, Lucas St. Clair. It's about health care. What are the pros and cons of making Medicare our universal health care versus improving the ACA? Which do you support and why? I support a universal health care um, in a single-payer system. And I spent last Friday uh, in the living room of a guy named uh, Phil Caper, and he started uh, – Maine All Care, uh, Jonathan, I believe, is on their board, and uh, he has is been spending the last 25 years of his life focusing on uh, insurance and healthcare and the challenges with it. And the way it was explained to me is that uh, the ACA is inherently confusing, and I think we all can realize that. Um, the great simplicity of a single payer system, and it was it was laid out by Craig. Uh, with a percentage of wages from and 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 pay from employers and employees, and everyone pays into the same system, and everyone gets the same health care, makes it incredibly simple and is the ultimate equalizer. I think that's the best system for health care in our country, and I think it's certainly the easiest and the easiest to implement. Uh, we've heard a lot tonight about the challenges, or this afternoon, about the challenges and I think the biggest challenge with it is the fact that the insurance lobby and the healthcare lobby has uh, more money to spend in, than the entire defense lobby in our country. And it's, that is just an absurd thought. And uh, if, if we can focus on taking money out of politics and the ultimate corruption in our democracy, I think that these, these problems for single-payer healthcare would be simple to resolve. is for uh, Craig Olson. The Republican Congress has managed to deny, trivialize, and condemn climate change as a serious issue. 
and all the while insisting that jobs um, trump any consideration of this urgency. What would you do to help the conservation and repudiate those in Congress who continue to prevent any movement forward? Well, I would keep harping on science, even though people don't seem to be listening on one side of the aisle to, to the science argument. But uh, we cannot deny that our lobsters are moving north. They're moving to warmer water. They're warming, moving to cooler waters. We're having that issue, I know, out on the island and other places. Um, the ocean acidification, I mean, it's all happening. The data is there. You have to keep hammering away at these things. And I think the unfortunate thing that's happened in the past few years is that we've gotten into a mindset of everything has to be taken care of in the next quarter of the business cycle. And that is not the case. I mean, it has to be. We have to look at these things over a long-term period of time. We have to talk to both members of the aisle. And the interesting thing that I run into as I'm out talking to people is when you actually sit down and talk to people, it's amazing how many similarities you have and how many opinions that maybe at first you don't quite agree with them, but as you begin to have a conversation, people begin to admit that, yeah, we are having an issue. We, you know, we, we are having an issue on the island with Lyme disease because of the tick population. It's getting warmer, and these ticks are living longer, and the lobsters are going further north. I had a conversation at the basketball game on the island the other night with our local lobsterman, and we were talking about, and he, he truly feels, and this, he's been lobstering for quite a while, that within the next few years, the bottom is going to fall out of the lobstering industry because of these lobsters moving. And he's going deeper and deeper as he fishes, as he's catching fewer lobsters. And with what's happening with Canadian lobstering and um, price infrastructure, he really sees an issue. So you have to keep hammering away. It's not going to happen right off the bat. But you have to talk to people about what is happening in their community. And I'm talking about people across the aisle, people who you're working with in Congress. What's happening in your community and having that conversation, it, it's not going to happen overnight. It has to be a slow, slow drip. Thank you. All right. This next question is for Jonathan Fulford. Uh, what do you believe are the most important fundamental um, characteristics of an individual serving in public office? Um, name and talk about three or four of them. Um, what are the individual characteristics that you would, would, I'd like to see? Um, integrity, hard work, and a willingness to listen to... Um, and learn from everybody that one has contact with. So, am I supposed to, is that a two-minute one? <laughs> or is that yeah, it's a two-minute answer, so if you have more thoughts on that, go ahead. Uh, well, I think, I think also that um, this isn't so much of a personal characteristic, but as far as, like, I think what you have to bring to it is actually not being willing to conduct yourself in a way that politics have been conducted for, you know, for a long time. And that means not taking any corporate money, no lobbyist money, no corporate PAC money, you know, no corporate PAC money, no lobbyist money, no dark money, no commingled PAC money if it has more than 10% of it, you know, being from corporations. I think you have to say, everybody says, yeah, I will not take, you know, I will not, you know, the money in politics is a problem. You have to actually not then take it, not wait for the Supreme Court to finally say it's illegal to, for you to take it, but to have actually, this is part of integrity of saying, actually, I'm willing to actually take the risk of actually being only supported by the people. Okay, thank you. And then finally on this round, uh, round for Jared Golden, what, this is a two-minute answer, what is your opinion about the United States calling Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Thank you. Um, 
you know, the, there's a long-standing history there of, uh, I think, American foreign policy not taking that position, and I think that this is really shaking things up and destabilizing the, the region. The, there's a reason why we have not um, made an effort to, to try and move uh, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem uh, as a way of indicating that it is, uh, you know, the position of the United States, whether or not Jerusalem is the capital of, of Israel. Um, you know, I think that we we should stay the course in terms of, of uh, allowing for the peace process to move forward without without taking those t types of actions. So I, I guess I think it was an ill-advised move and, and one that I think we're already seeing the way in which it, it is destabilizing uh, the region and preventing any uh, ability for uh, an honest brokering of uh, a peace deal and continued talks. Um, you know, I, I, I think that... Stated my position as, as clearly as I could there, um, but uh, you know I think certainly unfortunate uh, that that we've taken that unilateral step at this point. Thank you. All right, the next um, question is um, a question posed to each of the candidates. Jonathan, you've already more or less answered this question. It's about um, campaign finance, and the question um, by the submitter was written as, "Are you taking PAC money?" Um, so. You can answer it again if you like, um, briefly, because... I will take PAC money, but only if it is funded 90% or more by individual donations. That's how the PAC has to be actually funded. So, say an environmental group which actually met that standard, wanted to support that campaign, I would feel that was actually an accurate reflection of, of voter and individual support, and I would accept it. Anything more than that? No. Thank you. Let's just go down the table. Next will be Jared Golden, followed by Craig Olson, Tim Rich, then Lucas St. Clair. Absolutely. Um, you know, like Jonathan just referred to, some PACs uh, are, are different than others. Um, in, in some ways, that it is also a reflection of, of the problem of, of our money and politics in general. I do like the idea of having a publicly funded option available for people out there. Uh, it, it works well in Maine. I know that people have fought for it at the federal level. Uh, it can be funded, um, and you know you can set a base level that is acceptable for winning campaigns. And then I think, as Tim suggested, if you see a lot of corporate PAC money flowing in against someone, um, kind of you know bump that up. But um, I, I'm, I'm going to make a commitment to not taking corporate PAC money. I uh, would be surprised if anyone sitting at this table does not. Um, and, you know, sticking with Ending Citizens United to address the, the problem. Um, at the end of the day, what I'll tell you right now is I've raised uh, about $350,000 since I got into this race at an average contribution of just about $100. Uh, that's 3,100 individual contributions from people like you. Uh, and, and I think that's how we're all going to commit to raising the money that we need to compete with Bruce Poliquin. And, and I, I agree, too. I mean, public funding for me, I really think, is, is what we need for the federal, federal elections. I mean, we already give, what is it, $3 we can check off on our, uh, our personal income tax that we can contribute to a presidential election fund. I mean, I think we should have the same for federal elections for Congress. Um, and I, you know, PAC money, is, it's a, it's, it's, it can be a really, uh, a really scary area because you sometimes don't know who is behind that money. And I agree with uh, both Jared and... and and um, Jonathan, that I really want to know where that money is coming from, who are the contributors, you know, and if somebody like Ben and Jerry have a pack, you got it, I'm on, I'm on board. Um, but, um, you know, something that's shady and we're not, you know, you're not quite sure about, and no, it's not something I want anything to do with. 
I, yeah, you know, I've, I've said this before. Um, if I was in a position where one of the unions I used to work for that I believe in came to me and offered me some PAC money, I'd probably take it. Uh, I think for the most part, 98%, I can say that I wouldn't accept corporate PAC money. Um, I think that's fair. You know, I, I think there's something that none of us have talked about, um, and I, I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but I, but I think it goes beyond PAC money, too. You know, um, the, the, the National Democratic Party that, that kind of focuses and specializes on congressional elections, the, they call it the DCCC. And the DCCC came in here um, in, in July, and I know a bunch of us met with them, I went with them, and, and asked them, you know, to not be involved at all in the primary process until we sort out kind of how we feel. And in that conversation, they agreed. And then they, they recruited Jared, and I know they've, they've talked to Lucas and others. You know, I, I really strongly believe that the National Party doesn't have a role to play at all whatsoever until after our primary is done, and that that's maybe a much bigger deal than any question about PAC money that we're facing right now. Thank you. So um, I think the uh, preaching to the choir here, but um, we... You know, I think that Citizens United and money in politics has been the ultimate corruption of our democracy in, in our lifetime. And we will not be able to see lawmakers uh, be influenced by their constituents when they're getting millions of dollars uh, of funding from corporations and lobbyists and, and so on. And so I think Jared made a very good point. I don't think any of us here are going to get any money from corporations. You know, we're just not the, not the target audience for that. Uh, but certainly our opponent will and has and will continue throughout the rest of this election. And if we want to gain institutional power, win elections, and make the changes that we want to see in order to take money out of politics, we do have to play in this paradigm. So we do have to continue to raise money. We have to work very hard with individuals to raise money. And I think the best way to do it is to grow grassroots support and get as many small dollar donations from people all over this country that are committed to making sure that the House turns blue in 2018. With that said... With that said, PAC money is, is, is as described. There are good PACs and there are bad PACs. Certainly the bad PACs are not going to play a role in this race for any of us. Um, but we will certainly look to places like Planned Parenthood and League of Conservation Voters and 314 PAC and the unions to be able to support our race and the monies that come into this race will, will help us win. But we also have to remember at the end of the day, it's not money that's going to win this race. It's grassroots foundational support from the voters of this district. And so while money is important, it is not the thing that is going to ultimately win this race. And we have to stay very focused on being able to listen, hear, and act on the, the needs and wants of, of the voters in the second district. We're out of time, so we'll end there today. We'll pick up where we left off next week here on Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. You can catch us here on WERU-FM every Tuesday at 4 o'clock. I'm your host, Amy Brown. The forum you've been listening to today was held in Belfast on Sunday, January 21st. It was sponsored by the Belfast, Midcoast, and Head of Tide Indivisible Groups and the Waldo County Chapter of Maine All Care. The Democrats will hold their primary to decide on a candidate to run against Bruce Poliquin in June. That election, of course, is in November of 2018. 
Keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! coming up next only on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org.